Dave here. Just wanted to take a moment to thank the people involved in making this particular episode a reality. Lee Ross contacted the Busker Hall of Fame team about 10 months ago suggesting that we interview Hal Dion, a personal hero of his who had an enormous influence on Lee becoming a street performer himself back in the 80s. Lee then took the initiative to reach out to Hal and to Derek McAllister, both of whom are in the Los Angeles area to set up the interview. Schedules being what they are, it took a few months to arrange a time when Derek was able to make it out to Hal's place for the interview, but they found a time and a recording was captured. That interview was then sent to Magic Brian, who tackled the preliminary edit in and around his busy life. Next, that edit was given to me to polish, add voiceovers to, and prep for release. There's a lot that goes on behind the scenes before one of these episodes goes out into the world, and it was great working with a team from various generations of the street performing community to make this one a reality. So, if you have any street performing heroes, and a cell phone with a voice recorder on it, you have the tools to help us capture the voices that matter and deserve to be shared. So, go out and make it happen. Alright, let's get to it. The magical thing about street performing, and especially the show that I put together eventually, is a silent show and there was no language barrier. And you try to explain this to people. Street performing did this for you, but yes it did. Street performing got me around the world. Not once, but several times. And um, that is a gift that came to me that I'm so happy that I was able to open my arms to it and understand what was given to me. And literally, um, a wave was presented in front of me, and I got on that wave and took a beautiful ride. Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history about street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. I'm David Aiken, the checkerboard guy, your host for this growing collection of interviews. Each generation of performers has an impact on the next, and it's sometimes difficult to piece together the history of things if you're multiple generations away from the period being discussed. This is why I was really excited to include this interview with Hal Dion, because Hal pioneered performing on the steps of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City shortly after his first ever performances at the 1976 Summer Olympics in Montreal. As I was putting together this episode, I wondered how many people listening to this podcast were even alive in 1976. Certainly not Derek McAllister, who conducted this interview. We sometimes forget that we're all a part of a very long tradition, and that our tribe is one that's been able to turn a street corner or a set of stairs into an impromptu theater for generations. Getting Derek to speak to Hal for this episode felt like a great chance to connect the realities and experiences of two very different generations. Though what I love most about this release is that the interview simply becomes a great conversation between two like-minded members of our tribe discussing a life and time filled with some pretty amazing stories from the pitch. Welcome to the house. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome here and uh, make yourself at home. Oh, I already have. <clears throat> All right, so for the people listening, my name's Derek McAllister, a.k.a. Derek Derek, or Adorkable Derek, and today <laughs> I have the fortune of interviewing Mr. Hal Dion. Yes, and, yes. Uh, the beautiful part about this, to me, is that I don't know much about your history, so I get to be as curious as hopefully the listeners shall be. Well, as I say, welcome to the home, and uh, in reality, I have... Uh, 
lots of stories to share. So uh, we don't have a campfire going here. It's a, it's a hot, sunny day outside, a beautiful day. It's a beautiful but, day. We're in uh, Silver Lake, and he just showed me his balcony and a tree that he grew from a nub, evidently, to, yes. to a massive, towering, quote-unquote, apple tree. That was yeah. very great. Um, we're very happy living in this little surrounding here, and uh, it's been a place of magic, and may it continue to be that way for years to come. So let's start from the beginning. That's sure. where people tend to enjoy picking up a story, I guess. And, um, and uh, the bottom line, it's the story of, uh, of a street performer. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the funny thing about street performing, going back to its roots for me, I grew up in uh, uh, what I call a very poor, working-class, blue-collar town in Massachusetts. My town and the other two towns around it Three towns create a triangle, and we used to call it a triangle of depression, a land of uh, hills and mills and unpaid bills. And as a punk, penniless kid, I used to play in my backyard, and I was fascinated with jets flying overhead because they would leave Logan Airport in Boston, and they would take their routes, and every once in a while a jet would be going over my head, and I would dream like wonder where those people on board are going, you know, and I, I didn't go into Boston much, but we had a little place that we would go to in Cape Cod. And at the end of Cape Cod is a town called Provincetown, P-Town. And in the summertime, that place is mobbed with people. Mm. It's elbow to elbow. And I think that was the first place that I saw huge crowds and quote unquote, someone working the street, mm. a street performer. But he was not a legit street performer. It was a police officer simply directing traffic. But he did it with color. He did it with panage. He did yeah. it with all kinds of uh, little uh, funny, quirky gestures. And he had fun. Nice. He was having a good time. He was entertaining people on the sidewalks as he directed traffic. I saw him do that. And I saw the crowd around him, and I thought, what would that be like to come to a place like this and put on a show and pass a hat? How old were you at this time? Oh, I I was probably um, 15 or 16 then. Okay. And then... This is kind of your first exposure to to the idea of crowds and the manipulation, because I kind of want to back up a little bit and see, you know, why did you arrive at the point where you're like, yeah, I'm going to do, I I can happily do that or something. Was there something else? Well, I think think going back, if you want to go back years earlier, there was an innate thing or a discovery in me when I was five or six years old. I'm born and raised Irish Catholic. Oh, my dad's French-Canadian, but my mom's side of the family... uh, Anyway, both sides of the family, very devout, churchgoers, Catholic. I was an altar boy. And when you're on the altar, you already have an audience. Mm, okay. The altar is a, is a stage, yeah. and you have people seated or standing, watching your every move. And uh, all of a sudden, you, you find yourself not just doing the rites and the ritual of what you're supposed to do during the Mass, but you're maybe kind of ratcheting it up. Uh-huh notching it up a little bit. Uh, you're, you're performing. Yeah. And I started doing little uh, performance pieces in my home for my two sisters or my brother or a neighbor. And I found myself playing a priest or the altar boy and then doing little skits around that. Huh. 
So I think there was a thing that started to be in me where I was enjoying yeah. being an actor. Right. You want you enjoyed the attention. performing. The performance, the live, the live performance as well, obviously. Yeah. And when I saw that police officer in Provincetown directing traffic, he was performing for the crowd around. And Was he directing like car traffic or was it so busy with pedestrians that he was um, just like, stop or is it all the above? Pure car traffic. Okay. But he gathered a crowd on like the but corners the, of the street? All four corners oh my because God, awesome. he was so entertaining in the way he was manipulating the cars. So to picture it, did the guy have, what was his outfit? Oh, just a generic police officer outfit with a cap, no white gloves. No gloves or anything, okay. But it was uh, very, very kind of uh, uh, over-exaggerated gesturing and, uh, <laughs> you know, like pointing at a, 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 um, a watch an imaginary there. watch, yeah. <laughs> saying, come on, come on, come on, this way, that way, come on, you know, I'm dying out here, you know, that kind oh of God. stuff. Yeah, fabulous. And, uh, that attitude uh, that you get in the Northeast, too, right? Like the... I'm dying over here. Let's get a move on, this kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. Oh, gold. So uh, I watched him and I watched the crowd build up. And subsequently, the following year, I did take a little excursion into Boston with some friends to go to a museum. And I saw probably my first official street performer in, uh, I believe it was Boston Common. And it was a juggler. And he really wasn't gathering a crowd or really stopping people. He was out there juggling. People would walk by him, kind of give him a little look and uh, continue on. But he did have a hat out. And every once in a while, I'd see somebody throw a coin or, or this, that, or the other. But basically, looking back, it's very fundamental, just three-ball juggling. But he was manipulating these three objects in a nice way. It was a nice, simple visual. So I went home and I took that idea and I thought, well, maybe that's what I should do. Get into juggling. Is that what you call that? Moving those balls? Yeah, that's juggling. Let me see <laughs> if I can learn how to juggle myself. And of course, I didn't have anyone around. Uh, I didn't have instructional books or we didn't have the internet. Or So I went out to my dad's garden and picked up three stones, three stones that I thought, yeah, these are objects that I can work with and start learning. Uh, I'll teach myself how to juggle. And I love it, it, man. (laughs) All I can tell you is no matter how hard I tried or what avenue I went down and what little success I had with it, uh, I just got day-to-day, week-to-week, I didn't find myself getting closer to what I wanted, I was just getting more and more frustrated. And I think I got to the point where I said, you know what? God did not make me to be a juggler. (laughs) And this is a very funny thing about it, because when you think about juggling, literally, you are manipulating solid objects, right? And what I ended up becoming was a mime. And a dear friend of mine, uh, today he's a very successful actor, the first time he saw me do a show on the street doing the mime that I do, he said to me, you know what you're doing? You're manipulating objects, but objects that do not exist. I said, well, it's called mime. He goes, no, you know what you're doing? You're jerking air. You jerk air. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's what you do. You manipulate, you pull, you tug, you push up and down. You're an air jerker. That's what you do. <laughs> and you do it well. And I said, well, thank you. But um, so, yeah, going back to Massachusetts, I gave up on the manipulation of the stones. Did you break any toes or fingers throughout the attempt at manipulating stones? No. No serious J injuries? The, 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 no. No injuries to the body, but yeah, they were all to the mind. To the mind. <laughs> they were all injuries to the mind. I got so frustrated. And I'll tell you, because of that, you know, it's a negative in the moment, but the positive is when I went on in life, later in life, and I started meeting jugglers around the world, it gave me a total different uh, appreciation to what their art is and what they've accomplished. But uh, anyway, back to Massachusetts, street performing and the concept of it came to an abrupt end. I wasn't juggling. Didn't go back to Provincetown. Didn't go back to Boston. Next thing you know, and I found myself in college. And that also did not gel in my head. Right. So at this point, <clears throat> the college time, you tried juggling. You saw some things. You hadn't experienced, been exposed to mime or anything yet. Nope. Not at all. Did and you have any sort of exposure to other theater stuff? So like you did the altar boy thing, and then as a kid, and then teenager in high school, any sort of theater background or acting or any of that? In high school, I did a school play, and then my folks heard about this summer trip that uh, several schools were planning. They were going to take a group of students to Europe, and my father said, no, 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 we can't afford it. Mm. And my mom, God bless her, she pulled strings, and she, she, you know what, she borrowed money from Peter to pay Paul type of thing. And she got the money together where I could take this school trip. And we did a six-week trip through Europe. Fabulous. And the trip started in London. And what do you do in London at nighttime? You go to the theater. And at the time, theater was dirt cheap in the West End. And I saw so many incredible plays and incredible performances. And it was the first time the light bulb went off in my head where I said, what that person's doing up there on that stage is magnificent, again, magical, and they're getting paid to do it. Wouldn't that be an incredible profession? That was my junior year going into my senior year of high school, and that's when I said to myself, I want to be an actor. So, of course, my final year of high school, I did a couple of plays. I applied to the University of Massachusetts, uh, got in their theater program, I went there for a year and a half and really did not like it at all. Mm. The best part about going to UMass in Amherst was there's four other schools around there. Amherst College, uh, Mount Holyoke, Smith, Hampshire College. And you're allowed, if you go to any one of those schools, you can take a class at one of the other schools. Wow. So there was an incredible acting teacher at Mount Holyoke. And I used to hitchhike from UMass over to uh, South Hadley, Mass, where Mount Holyoke is, and take this acting class there. And that really excited me more and more about becoming an actor. And good most, teachers, right? It's all about good teachers. Yeah, but not only that, all the girls from Mount Holyoke, a lot of them were New Yorkers. And they were telling me New York stories, and New York this, and New York that. So then I got this whole desire 
to go to New York City. There came the moment where I said to my folks, I'm dropping out of college, and they died. Yeah. You loser. Yeah. You loser in life. I upset my folks so much, and I had to beg with them. I said, would you please let me live at home for six months so I can save up money and move to New York? And I think my father, in the back of his head, said to himself, he's back at home and he'll never leave. But I worked two jobs. I worked a day job and a night job, saved my money. And on a September morning in 1975, I moved to New York City. And uh, I will tell you this quick, quick story, and then I'll get into my street performing stuff. But a friend of a friend said I could sleep on a couch in New York till I found a place to live. Wow. I took Amtrak from Providence into New York City. And when I arrived with my one bag, I left Penn Station. I walked out on 8th Ave and there was a sea of taxi cabs. I think there's a line in a Stevie Wonder song where he goes, Woo, New York City, just as I imagined it. And I put my hand out and a big yellow checker cab pulls up. I get in the back and just as I'm about to close the door, this bigger man, a lot bigger than me, grabs the door, jerks it, the handle out of my hand. He gets in the car in the back seat with me, throws me up against the other door, pushes my face up against the glass window, puts his hands in his pants, and he pulls out a pistol. The pistol's sawed off. How do I know it's sawed off? Because he sticks it to the temple of my head, and immediately I can feel the blood dripping down my face. I got my face up against the glass, blood coming down the other side of my face. I closed my eyes and I said to myself, I just moved to New York City and I am a dead man. I opened my eyes and you know, those cabs, they're like a cage. If you're in the back, you can't reach and grab the driver because it's, it's caged in. Uh-huh. You have to put your money through a slot. All I could see in the mirror where the driver can look back, I see these little black beady eyes. And then I can look through the cage and I see his hack license. His name was like uh, Sid Solomon or something. It was an old Jewish cab driver. And you know, that old Jewish cab driver and that young big guy with the gun to my head, they got into a, a verbal argument. And they volleyed back and forth. And the cab driver was like, you get the hell out of my cab. I'll fuck you. I'm going to fuck you up. I'm going to kill this guy first and I'm fucking finish you off. Now you get the fuck out. No, you get the fuck out. And they went back and forth, back and forth. And you know what? That old cab driver, he talked the guy down. The guy put the gun in his pants, got out, said, F you, slammed the door. And off we went. Seven minutes later, I'm shaking. Uh, I'm, yeah. uh, I'm white as a ghost. And I'll never forget that cab driver. He says, see, kid, you just got to know how to talk to people. <laughs> <laughs> right, we're laughing now, but you were not laughing. No, now. in the next three weeks, I probably lost 25, 30 pounds. Wow. Just shaking and I, I couldn't eat. All from that, <clears throat> like PTSD kind of oh, thing? Oh, my God. That? Unbelievable. That's fucking unbelievable. But... Two days later, it takes me into 
the journey that got me into street performing. Mm. Only two days later in New York City, I got the trade paper and I went and I auditioned. I saw casting for this off-off Broadway rock musical was being done in Greenwich Village. I auditioned for this role in it and I got the job. Now it's off-off Broadway. There's no pay. Just rehearse and do this show. And there's a gal in the show, in the cast, on the first day of rehearsal. She has, a, a, I think, a Boston Red Sox shirt on. I said, hey, are you from Massachusetts by any chance? Yeah, I am. And uh, anyway, we just started talking. And I said, I am from Massachusetts as well. I just got here. And she said to me, well, where are you staying? I said, well, I'm on a person's couch. And she said, well, I live down here in the village. I have a tiny apartment, but I have a quote-unquote a little closet space where there's a cot in there. You could rent that. You could stay there if you want till you find a bigger place or a place you're happier. And I said, oh, my God, perfect. So I moved in with her on Bleecker Street. And about two days later, I came back in the afternoon and I put my key in the door and I go in there and in her bedroom area, she had a big mirror and she was in front of the mirror doing some kind of physical movement. I didn't know what it was. Her name is Cindy, Cindy Benson. And I said, Cindy, uh, I'm sorry to, I'm not trying to be, uh, you know, nosy or anything, but what are you doing? She said, well, I'm, I'm going through my physical isolations. I said, what? She goes, these are mime isolations. I'm doing this body isolation work. Oh, I didn't tell you. I'm in a mime troupe, and we're going on tour next week, so I need to kind of get tuned up. Yeah. And I said, well, what you just did right there blows my mind visually. That's beautiful. That movement through space and then the resulting movement that came after. And she goes, well, I'll show you how to do that. It's a body isolation. So she started teaching me this stuff, and I fell in love with what I realized later was the eye candy of it. It was beautiful to look at. And I started to learn how to do certain things that when I could see in the mirror what I was doing, I thought, well, that really looks kind of cool. I like that. Well, I never really got any further lessons from Cindy. She went on tour. I ended up finding this other place that I moved to. And I kind of was wandering around, kind of groping in the dark, wanting to know and learn more about mime. And I heard about this one workshop. It's the best $135 I ever invested in my life. The guy's name was Richard Morse. He had a, it was like a two-week workshop in New York City. I took that class, that two weeks, and I immediately said to myself, I think I have something. I could put together like a 10, 11, 12-minute show and find a place to go and perform it. Try it. Remember those crowds you saw in Provincetown? Remember that guy you saw in Boston? Well, maybe I could put something out that might be better than what that guy in Boston was doing and actually stop people. And you know what? I got so scared and nervous. 
I was like, I'm so new to New York City in the first place. I was a nervous wreck to begin with. Well, I had a gun pointed to my head not long before that. And, you know, the Big Apple is quite a, a daunting place. And, you know, almost a year had gone by. It's 1976. And I look in the sports page and I go, Summer Olympics, Montreal. The Olympics are going to be in Montreal on these dates. What happens during the Olympics? People come from all over the world. I said to myself, Montreal is going to be packed with people and people that don't know me. (laughs) So I could go up there and try to do a show. And if it works, fine. If it doesn't, who cares? That's amazing that you kind of had that insight without having done shows yet, right? Because like now we're seasoned performers and we can be like, yeah, obviously you go there. But when I was a kid, for me, looking, I would have not thought of that necessarily. I don't know. It's interesting. It's fascinating. Uh, Interesting is right. Again, it's a light bulb that went off. Yeah. And again, uh, it was that wave that was starting. And I got on that Greyhound, which was a wave that... Oh, the dog. Yeah, that got me up to uh, Montreal. And there's a street there, if I have it right, a lot of cafes uh, on the Rue Saint-Denis. I came upon two cafes that were back-to-back and they were afternoon people having coffee or beers. And I, I went for it. And I did my little uh, seven or eight minute thing. And people were like, hey! Really? Hey! So this is your first time? First time. That was it. Okay, Cold de- turkey. Describe it a little bit more. Like, did you have anything with you? Right? Like, um, give us a little more of a visual. So you showed up. You're like, you saw the two things. You're like, this would be perfect. Because there were there people, you know, did you have foot traffic as well? Or was it more like aimed at the cafe, the people in the terrace kind of thing? Yeah. These are all things that were not in my vocabulary yet about looking for the perfect place where there's foot traffic, no, where course, there's people yeah. are... Yeah, people are already established, or, or uh, is this uh, a proper, uh, uh, um, will this lend itself for a performance? Is there kind of like a little faux stage here? All I saw was two cafes with people kind of uh, receded a little up off the sidewalk. Mm. So I thought, if I could get their attention, they'll turn and they'll look my way on the sidewalk. So you're just on the sidewalk, there's cars passing behind you, and you're just doing a thing in between, or, yeah. And for some reason, no I remember <clears throat> very little traffic, mm. but, again, to get eye attention, for years I worked in whiteface, and I used to hate wearing whiteface, but I did it because it was a visual, where people would see, you know, it would be a, a thing immediately where where you'd stand out. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah, obviously, yeah. Uh, so that's, uh, it's kind of like, hey, look at me. Now you're looking at me. Now let me show you what I can do. So I had my my little conceived outfit, you know, these black pants, and it was a black, uh, a black shirt on with a colorful scarf, I remember, maybe a vest. And a I, hat? Um, not a hat that I wore, but just a hat. Yeah. To collect money in. And gloves or no? No gloves. Cool. So just the white face. <clears throat> just the white face and that black, black outfit. Suit, a little colorful scarf. Yeah. And, and, and that was the contrast. You saw the, the black outfit and the white face. Yeah. So that stands out. And Amazing. I had, I'm just amazed that you just like, yep, yeah, sidewalk, perfect. Let's go. The first show. That's amazing. My first, like the, the memory was so daunting, you know, to do your first one. Sorry. Oh. Go ahead. I, I mean, trust me. 
I'm shaking. I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm wobbling, you know, I'm rocking back and forth. And that makes the show even harder because one of the eye candy things that I started doing using body isolations, I would start with robotics. And that's one of the things that I, um, as I piece together different body isolations, I realize they translated very well into certain robotic moves. So I'd start with quote unquote, what I call my mechanical man. And from there, the mechanical man snaps out of being mechanical. What I discovered was the robotics got people looking my way. And then when the human being came out of the robot, then I would go into um, very cliche. He would walk into a wall. He'd do the wall. Once I was trapped in the wall, how do I get out of being in the box? I would blow up an imaginary balloon and it would pull me out. Or I would go macabre and put an imaginary rope around my neck and hang myself. But between the robotics, the old cliche, hands on the wall. Yeah, okay. I almost don't want to stop you now, but I have to because um, we say cliche now, but this is 76. And like, was it, you know, I mean, that's what the mime did back then. But like the things that we think about now, it's so much harder to do street theater now because everybody's seen it. And like back then, I would imagine that, yeah, you were doing stuff that mimes did. And, and I guess I'm kind of, my, ask, my question is, what's the context? You say it's cliche, but was it cliche then? You know? Yeah. <clears throat> or was it kind of new to the public? I mean, first of all, uh, from what I've heard, the 70s and 80s were like the heyday for street theater in most places. Um, sure. Because it was kind of breaking into <clears throat> it. And so I imagine that. I, I want to say cliche in the sense that someone like very well-known touring concert artist, Marcel Marceau, right. had gone around the world. People had seen him on Johnny Carson. There's Marceau doing the wall. Yeah. There's Marceau being trapped in a box. Now I'm seeing this young man kind of imitating Marceau. And what I literally was doing there in front of those two cafes in Montreal was the box. And it was not something original. Now later, I used the technique of, of doing the wall or the box. And I was able to do it in an innovative, very different way in different street situations. But in that given day, in that given moment, hey, I'm, I'm just kind of looking back and going, you know, you're trying things and you're, you're also doing something that you think you perceive people want to see or they'll appreciate how you do it. Anyway, I passed the hat and made a little money. And I had... Uh, do you remember how much? Oh, you know, like maybe $7.50. Seems to be kind of the average. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, I found a youth hostel there. I think there were six bunks in it, and so I had one of the bunks, and I think that seven fifty already had paid my. Your, it, was, your it, was, stay. it was probably like four dollars a night or something. Nice. Okay, so I will go back to my place, I freshen up, I get a shower, and then I wander in the streets, and I go to. I discover I didn't know where to go, but I discover this place called Old Montreal, and there's a square there, and I see a friggin' kick-ass juggler. I mean, this guy is awesome. And he fin he's got a huge crowd. He finishes his show. 
collects his money, and it, it just clicks in my head. He's not going to do a show right away. He, he's out of breath. He's got to take a break. So I walk up to him. He's not really interested to speak with me, but I find out he speaks English. Um, and I, I, Excuse me, sir. Um, I, I just watched your show, and what a great show. And I just imagine you're going to take a little break. Do you mind if I just like do a very quick show in your space while you're resting? He's like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. That's okay. So he goes off to the side. He might even walk down a little alleyway, probably drink some water or whatever. And I work up a crowd like doing the same show that I did earlier. Uh, And I work up a crowd like quickly. So you said that you went home and showered and everything. Are you still? Did you not have the white face? Oh, I put. I I I went out thinking I'm going to perform that night. Oh yeah. So full white face and everything back. Okay, cool. Full white face, my outfit on. No, I was going out that night to perform. To perform, cool. I just didn't know where or when or how. I do my full little quote unquote twelve minute show, and I make like fifteen or twenty dollars. And he comes back, and I say, you know. After you do your show, do you mind if I do one more show? Just one more. Just one more. He's like, yeah, okay. And that's what I did. And I was happy because it was the first time in my life I'm going back to a youth hostel with uh, like $40, $42 in my pocket, in my hat. Yeah. And now, this is going back in the day where I was so young and new at it, naive about it, that did I have a bag that I would put my money in? No, it's just whatever money is going to make in my hat. You know, Yeah. that's it. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to make more than a hat full of money, you know, <laughs> you know, you just don't know. No. Oh. And here's the funny thing. I got back to the youth hostel, got my shower and I got in my cot and the four or five other guys who were staying there, they come in and they bring in like a 12-pack of uh, Molson's or something, right? Hey, uh, hey, want a beer? You want a beer? Yeah, so we're all drinking beer. And these guys pull out money. And they're counting money. And I'm thinking, are they street performers too? I say, hey, what do you guys do? Well, we kind of hustle for money. I said, do you mind me asking? What is that all about? Well, there's certain couple of nice restaurants in Montreal we go to and we tried this in a few other cities and what you do is you go into the men's room and you know you you wait for someone to come in who's pretty nicely dressed and you say hey look I hate to bother you but I'm here with my girlfriend and we got our bill and I'm short you know like four or five dollars and and it's so embarrassing because I don't want to say anything to her could you help me out and so we pick different restaurants and we do that. I was like, wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and these guys. hustlers. So this guy has, hey, want another Molson's? And I said, yeah, sure. And he said, so uh, what are you doing? I said, well, you know, I'm just traveling. I just wanted to check out, you know, Montreal. And, <laughs> you know, the Olympics are here. I didn't tell him I was a street performer. Right. Anyway. Yeah, no, f- I'm just, uh, you know, here hanging out. <laughs> yeah. The following day. I go back to the square, and the jugglers are not there. So I do a, maybe three shows, and I'm making more money. And I kind of had a time constraint. I forget what it was that I had to get back 
south, back to New York. But uh, while I was up there, I said, oh, it's only like an hour and a half, two-hour bus ride from here. I went to Quebec, Quebec City. I went to old Quebec, and I street perform there. I make money. And now I move, I go back to New York City with this, it's not renewed, it's like this whole new thing yeah. surging in my body. Then I start looking for the place where I can do my show. Yeah, because you've got the knowledge now, the confidence, and the potential. You're like, okay, there it is. It's bubbling up. So for the first few shows, which I'm, you did the first show or so um, in front of the cafes, and then those other ones, how'd you ask for money? Or did you? You know, yeah, What was that part like of the show? Your mime. So did you end up breaking character to talk and ask for it? Or, you know, in an early part of that's a fascinating question that you ask because what came out of me the very first show that I did, which was new then, stayed with me my entire street performing career. Wow. I stayed with the same way of finishing my show to collect money, which is I work up to the finale of the show. The show comes to an end. I love theatricality. I love a beautiful, proper bow. I would take a proper bow. My hat would be on the sidewalk. I pick up my hat and immediately raise my right hand and my pointing finger. I point straight to my mouth, then to my stomach, give it a little rub, and hold out the hat like it's as pure. pure and primitive. Could you help me eat is totally. what it's saying in one gesture. That's beautiful. So uh, simple. I honest. point to my mouth, my stomach, and hold out the hat yeah. and smile. And it never stopped working. Yeah. And I always stayed with that. That's something so beautiful about mime. I switched to a silent show many years back. And not to say that I did the mime thing as well or as at all, really, but... Um, Something so powerful and beautiful about being silent, but I could never get away from breaking character after the show, like to then ask for money. And I'm visualizing you do that and seeing the beautiful mimes and silent shows that I look up to and love so much and, and seeing them uh, just be so basic, pure, and simple and something so beautiful that way. This guy I was telling you about in Italy would just uh, finish a show with a, a card that said FIN, right? F I N. And he'd have a little girl with him, and it was this beautiful, like, uh, tableau picture you know it was a girl from the audience that he would always use and and they would sit there it's just something so sweet and beautiful and it's the same idea that i feel like your finish has well thanks yeah <clears throat> it was just something that just came just arrived yeah and it stayed with me that's amazing so it was a saturday now back in new york city and i walk through the park i go over to the metropolitan museum of art and i see people coming and going people coming and going and those front steps, I uh, immediately started thinking, those steps are like a Greek or Roman theater. If you stop people, they can sit there. So I picked what I thought was a strategic place, not at the bottom of the stairs, like halfway up the stairs. And that way there I thought I'd get people standing in front of me, up above me, and maybe around me. So were you on a stair? Like, were you working, or was there like a little flat space? There was like one little, little flat, flat space. Nice. Yeah. Once again, I'm over there with what? 
my white face, my outfit, and just a hat. Yeah. And so I got the hat. I do uh, my routine 12-minute show. Yeah. Pass the hat. Go off to the side. Come back. Another 12-minute. Pass the hat. I probably did five or six or seven of those. I'm the only one there. No one else is performing. I thought, this is cool. And each show, I get a, a nice audience. Pass the hat. At the end, I got this hat that's just brimming, right, with not just coins now, but for the first time, paper. There's paper in there. And I got this hat, and I'm carrying it back through the park to, to my apartment. And it was the first time that I spilled everything out. It was the start of the ritual. Like my floor in New York City was an old, teak, beautiful uh, wooden floor. Mm, nice. I, I was in an old brownstone. And I just spread out there on that floor, have a, you know, the routine beer when I got home. And it would be that beautiful ritual of seeing what the day was. And I remember that first day in front of the Metropolitan Museum of Art when I got home, the other light bulb went off in my head. I think when you do this in the future, you need to bring a bag with you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. And you've had no like street performer mentors to this point. It's no, all just none. your experience. That's beautiful. None. It's just I'm envious of that in a way because I always had people that both influenced me and that I looked up to, which is great, but I was never I never had a clean slate with which to just go and explore and, and improvise for my own sake. As I say, uh, when I say God presented this gift to me and I'm happy that I opened my arms and received it and uh, didn't like fight against it. And one thing led to another to another. So just very quickly to to speed the clock up here, what happens is a street performer in my development now is I'm going back to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I discover weekdays, it's quiet. But weekends, it's a mob scene. And I all of a sudden, I'm moving off of the steps now, further down on the sidewalk, playing to bigger crowds, the show gets longer. Now I'm, during the week time, making a, a longer show or a bigger show. The show's expanding. The show's evolving. Before I'm just doing what I call, or as my friend called it, jerking air, I'm doing physical illusions, mime illusions. Now the mime illusions are there, but they're in different spots in the show. I'm doing, uh, throwing in now improv, I never, ever, later, I saw, quote-unquote, people in white face with striped shirts walking behind people. Yeah, mimicking followers. Mimicking them. I never wanted to do that. I never got into doing that. Following somebody to imitate their walk, their gait, their gestures, whatever they're doing. But when I say my improv, what I got into doing, if you're establishing a space... You have people passing through it before your stage is kind of solidified. If you have people passing through it and they're unique and unusual, make use of that. So timeline-wise, the stuff that you just told me about, the show evolving and all that, it's like 76, the Olympics in Montreal, you come back and you were working the Metropolitan for a few years, two years, one year. You know, by 77, you could have shows at the Met where the steps would be filled with people. The final bell at the time was at 4.45. 
where people would all come out. And if you could get that final show and time it out right, you'd be out of there by 5.15. And I would walk through the park and I'd like pinch myself going, I don't know how much money I have in my bag right now, but did you just see that last crowd? You know, because you got people behind you, people on the sidewalk circled around you, and then you have the entire steps. Wow. You've experienced big crowds where you go, uh, maybe this is what it's like to be a rock star. Yeah. You know, 77, 78, 79, wow. The museum the crowds, the money, everything's going. Now, I've never called another street performer an obstacle or a conflict to me. Um, I was going to get at this later, but to me, the two biggest enemies to a street performer, one of them is authority. And to me, authority translates to police. That's always been my biggest enemy, my biggest problem. And the other problem is inclement weather, bad weather. Rain will stop you from performing immediately. Well, the reason why I bring those two up, the Met was, it was like an oil machine. I could go there and do how many shows I wanted. I'd get there one in the afternoon, crank in my shows, have my break time, make my money. It was a bank. Sounds like, yeah, that a place gold is, mine. It was a gold and mine. And you were by yourself. By myself. Fuck Pla- off. <laughs> places printing money. And I remember the girlfriend I had at the time, she was helping me count money. And you realize you're making this much money and it's no taxes. Yeah. You know, all that kind of stuff. Well, anyway, every good thing comes to an end. A street performer showed up. Nice guy. He said, do you mind if I take turns with you? Well, you need your break time. So we worked well together. I'd do my show. He'd do his show. He'd do his show. I'd do my show. And our shows were very different. He's a great guy. Mark Wiener. I don't know if you know Mark Wiener. No, I don't. I know the name. Mark Wiener was, at the time, uh, he did a little improv, but at the time he called himself a political juggler. He would juggle and tell... Uh, you know, temporary, contemporary political jokes. He got into his apartment one weekend. He disappeared for about two weeks. I said, Mark, where you been? Well, I came up with an idea of a puppet. I made this puppet. And I've been sewing, making the shoes and the pants and the shirt for this puppet. Well, next thing you know, Mark Wiener's got this puppet on Saturday Night Live. He ended up having his own show on Nickelodeon with his puppets. Mark Wiener and the Wienerettes. Some of the funniest, funniest, funniest stuff you've ever seen in your life. Mark got off the street with his puppets. Mark departs. A magician arrives. Another mime arrives. Lee Ross. And uh, he had a friend, Elon. They start performing there. And all of a sudden, there's like too many people. Performers. Too many performers. Oh, uh, Roy Lavitt. Roy ended up going off to Amsterdam uh, and establishing himself there. But at one point, the lineup in the wait in time, you know, I don't own the place. I don't have a license on this place. I can't tell you, you can be here and you can't be. Right. I'm not going to hold a shotgun to anybody. So all of a sudden, there started to be too many performers. But besides that, 
the biggest problem, what came to an end for me at the museum was I got arrested. And I had police officers used to come by and say, you know, your crowd's a little bit way too big. You're blocking pedestrian traffic. You're now messing with, because I did, I messed with street traffic. One of the key things that I used to do to close my show is I would time it out with a red light and get a city bus out there, go out there in the street. All the traffic stopped because of the red light. I'd get down. It was like a, you know, it was like a crazy matador. I'd get down on the pavement, do some push-ups, then put an imaginary rope on the bus, wink at the bus driver. You know, we'd do it together usually. The bus would move a little bit. You got this massive, huge illusion. That's so good. You're pulling a city bus past this crowd. That's so good. So good. I would hang myself out in the middle of the street. Uh, that's one time where the cliche wall, you make an imaginary wall across Fifth Ave and stop traffic. I'm lucky that I can even walk today because I did some silly daredevil stuff. You know, I used to get up on the top of cars and and do physical things on top of cars and stuff. All for the... Viewing pleasure of the massive crowd. That's it. The viewing pleasure. Whatever and what kind a of pleasure that must have been. That sounds like such a magical time that you were allowed to do that for a moment. There was no place on earth, I believe, and I am certainly speaking out of, out of actual, um, not out of actual knowledge, right? But I can't imagine that's allowed anywhere now. There's no chance, that, you know? That place in the late 70s and the early 80s, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, to me, was just so glorious. Now, again, you perform there in the fall, the winter's too cold, and then the spring is perfect. Even in the summer, the way the steps would bake in the sun, mm. it was like too hot. So that's starting in uh, 1977. I had started already then. Every summer, I'd go off to Europe. Now again, I was naive about that. I didn't know how it would go. And in 77, I flew to Amsterdam. I got a cheap flight to Amsterdam. And I started street performing in Amsterdam, making money. Lights are playing or dance Lights square? are playing. Yeah. That's where I would perform. And uh, it was 1977. I just kind of like, let's see how this goes. And I mm -hmm. went, uh, grabbed a train, went through Brussels. I never did a street show in Brussels. But I got to Paris. And that's where I was really scared shitless. Because I walked around Paris and I said to myself, I am seeing more people trying to do something on the street for money than anywhere I've ever seen before. Mm. I'm seeing guitar players, people work in the metro, people on street corners, people in front of cafes, guitar players. There's jugglers, there's fire eaters, fire blowers. There's old-fashioned street performing acts, European acts, like people who break up glass, lying on glass. Sideshow. Sideshow stuff. I mean, there was one little sideshow uh, in uh, Saint Michel on the left bank where this guy had like two goats that used to like walk up a ladder and across on a wire. I mean, old circusy type of things. And there were just shows all over the place all the time. And somebody said to me, what kind of show do you have? I met some performers. Well, you can go to the Pompidou and try over there. 
And I get over to the Pompidou, and I probably got there later than I should have in the day. There's like every little area, there's a different street performer. Huh. And I started finding out that if you're a tourist, you only have so much money you're going to toss out to street performers. So I started finding out that, wow, money only spread so far. And I was really scared if I could make money there. And uh, I remember I went to, uh, on the left bank, I went in the evening. There's a place called the, the Café Abdou Mago in Saint-Germain-de-Prés. And that's where I started doing shows in the evening. And uh, I could make some decent money there. And I had a little trick, a little trick that I learned in New York City. I didn't tell you this. Whenever I used to want to make extra money from different than the museum, on Friday nights I used to go down to Greenwich Village. And in Sheridan Square, there was a tobacco shop above the subway entrance and exit way. And there was a newspaper stand that was open during the daytime but closed at night. And hubris, you know, I'd, I'd do wild and crazy things. So I discovered if I got on top of the newspaper stand and did my eye candy stuff on top of the newspaper stand, people could see me in the whole square so I could get a big crowd that way. Finish my show, jump off the newspaper stand and pass my hat. So that was a key to success for me in Paris. In Saint-Germain, I found a newspaper stand that was closed during the nighttime. Mm. I would do my shows on top of that and then jump down and pass Amazing. my <clears throat> So that was a good thing. The other thing I discovered when I say two enemies for street performers, authority and bad weather. I had cops in Saint-Germain and uh, Saint-Michel tell me to move on or I can't perform here because it, with the crowds, pickpockets and stuff. Hmm. And with all the other acts happening at the Pompidou, I discovered one thing. Say they open at 10 o'clock in the morning, the Pompidou Museum. There's that outside tubing that goes around the building, scaffolding type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And on a rainy day, if it was raining out, Everyone waiting to go in the museum, they would be underneath that tubing. And no other performers would be there because it's pissing down rain. And I discovered you could go and do a show in front of that crowd waiting to get in. Who cares if you get wet? Yeah. You do a show and you're the only one there. And people were like, dude, look at this guy. He's out in the pouring rain. I'll give him money. So that worked really well for me. And um, in Saint-Michel, on the Rue uh, Saint-André-des-Arts, I discovered this one cafe, Café Mazé. And I met a fiddler, an Irish fiddle player in there. It was pissing down rain outside. He said, the secret to living in Paris is don't always street perform in Paris. Have you traveled around Europe yet and, and street performed in other places? And I said, well, I did Amsterdam. He goes... Well, if you've done Amsterdam, you've done Paris, what's stopping you? So then, you know, I did Barcelona, I did Nice, I discovered from Nice, I shot over, I did Venice, Florence, Rome. One night I was in Rome, I met these three wild and crazy Italian school teachers from Venice. They said to me, what are you doing? I said, well, I've been here in Rome for about two weeks street performing. I'm beat. 
I'm exhausted. You need a vacation. That's what we're doing. We're school teachers. We're on vacation. Why don't you join us? I said, where are you going? Ah, oh, we're going to take a train, southern Italy. And there's a town there. You get on a, a ferry boat and you go to Greece. Ever been to Greece? And I said, no, I never have. So I follow these guys. We visit this place called Corfu. We're in Corfu for wow. like two days, two nights. Just Corfu town. They said, this is not our vacation stop. Taking the boat further uh, to Patras. And then from Patras, you go across the mainland to Athens. And then from Athens, we're going to Mykonos. Wow. So I went. Amazing. Just traveling. Yeah. I got to Mykonos, and I hated it. Mm. It's a rock. It's barren. It's baked in the sun. I just wasn't happy there. And the reason why I wasn't happy is I had seen Corfu. And Corfu is a northern island in Greece. It's green. It's mountainous. It's lush. And I had seen this cafe area in Corfu. (laughs) Always the street performer. Yes. Yeah, you saw a gold mine. You're like, "Ah, I got to go. I hadn't worked it yet. And I thought, I thought about it. And uh, I talked to the three teachers and I said, you know what? I'm out of here. And they said, you know what? We're out of here too. We are going back to Corfu. I said, that was my plan. And this one teacher said, a friend of his had told him about this town on the other side of the island in Corfu that they hadn't had time to visit. They said, come on. So once again, I followed them. I went to this little village, discovered the most beautiful beach I've ever been to in my life. And this tiny little village on a mountainside with land behind it, terraced off, because it's olive trees, olive Mm. groves. You sleep up there under the stars for free. You eat at this one taverna. You can spend your days on this beach, and there's a natural waterfall coming off a cliff. (laughs) You come out of the sea, and boom. And then from there, 20 minutes across the island sits Corfu town. And what I discovered, the town is five, six days a week bustling with commerce during the daytime. And in the back of the town, there's a cafe area. And it's a series of colonnades, beautiful columns. Uh, The street is like the area is designed after the Rue Rivoli. Rivoli in Paris. Just beautiful architecture. A beautiful esplanade walking area, pedestrian area. And then underneath a whole canopy of trees is rows and rows and rows and rows of cafe seats. So what I discovered, you could work up a crowd there. Crowds all around you. But there's a cafe area that you're playing to, huge cafe area, and even behind you, in the other direction, a cafe area and some balconies. So you work up a crowd, you do a 15, maybe 20 minute show, and then you can pass your hat to all the people that are standing in the esplanade area. And then it's like visiting a church. You go up and down every row. You walk through the whole cafe seated area. Everyone who watched your show, they're still sitting there with their drinks. No one leaves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that place never stopped being magic to me. Again, 
the two enemies to a street performer. I never, ever in my life encountered a police officer there. And I never had a raindrop on my head wow. there. And once again, I'm not saying other street performers are foes or enemies. But sometimes if you have to take turns with them all the time, they can be. But I never, ever, ever saw another street performer there. I started street performing there in 1977. And the last time I was in Corfu, I think, was 2008. 30 years? Yeah. You kept going to Corfu for 30 years. Yeah. And uh, we have not been now. We haven't been in a number of years. And we're hoping to go this September. Cool. But that's another thing I've always said in my life, even though the decade plus where I only made my living as a street performer, I've always said to myself, oh, it'd be beautiful to live to uh, 92 or 102. And I always have in the back of my head that I will always do a show on the street. You know, I'm looking forward to the next time I get to Europe, the next time I get to Greece, to Corfu. I think, again, to use the, the M word, there's nothing to me in the world more magical. You see it today in, on YouTube, what they call the flash mob. People are in a big square, and they had no idea that music would start playing and somebody's going to start singing songs from Les Mis. Or, you know, they had no idea. Yeah. This is what I always loved about street performing. For example, in Europe, you arrive in a city... You scope the place out. You go, wow. You see that square? You see the foot traffic there? You see this one certain specific spot? If I do my show there, the crowd can build this way. And when you do it and it works, I've always said this to myself. These people that were coming and going, they had no intention. They didn't know they were going to see me here today. And if you do something that stops them, and then entertains them, and you take your bow and you collect money, they go on their way happy, and you go on your way happy. It's so pure and perfect, the simplicity of it, but the magic of finding that quote-unquote theater space out in the open, and uh, diamond in the rough, or maybe... You know, it depends. Your, it's, it's, your, it's the imagination of the street performer, too, to go, oh, no, 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 no. Maybe no one else has noticed this, but that is a natural theater sitting there waiting to come alive. If you can grab that place, get that spot, and not be stopped by somebody or saying... Cops or bad weather. Excuse me, sir, do you have a permit? Yes, I'm a human, and those are other humans. I have a permit to stand here and entertain those other humans. Yeah. Yes, sir, I do have a permit. Yeah. But I didn't get it from you. If I wanted to go and street perform somewhere where I know there's people, and I know I can get a crowd without going far, like I can get my car and go eight or nine minutes from here, I tried it. You go into Griffith Park, there's the L.A. Zoo, and a lot of people go there on a Saturday and Sunday. So I scoped it out. I said, whoa, a lot of foot traffic. Yep, this is what I do. This is a little show I I tailored, cobbled together for this spot. Yes, it works. I start doing my show. Yep, I'm feeling it inside. This is great. I got an audience. The crowd is building. 
Boom, I'm stopped by a park ranger. Sir, you can't be here. You can't do this. I said, but right over there, there's two guys that have push carts that they're selling balloons and ice cream and stuff. Sir, you can go over there. I'll walk over there with you. Those people are not selling. It's illegal to sell or take any money here unless it's a donation. They don't ask for any certain amount of money. People donate. I said, come on, the guy, I just said $2 for the ice cream. He goes, yes, but it's being given as a donation. I said, okay, I'm here street performing. I'm not asking for any money. It's a donation. He goes, listen, I'm telling you, now get the hell out of here. And I told him this, but it didn't go very far. Jenkins Griffith was the wealthy industrialist who gave Griffith Park to the city. And he gave it to the city of L.A. as a place for everybody. So why am I not allowed here? The zoo is something that shouldn't be here. The zoo is charging money to go in. Yeah. You know, and then you get that intimidating look from somebody. And I tiptoed away. And I don't know about you, but I myself as a street performer, I got punched in the chest by a New York City cop once. He hit me so hard, I, I, I never felt pain like that. And I'm not picking on police officers because I had a lot of police officers who said, hey, you know what, I saw your show. I don't like the size of those crowds, it makes my job difficult. But you know what, kid? When I see you starting to do a show, you know what I do? I like to walk around the back of the museum. That's what I'm talking about. I said, those are the best people in the world whenever they can realize that like, their job is to do something, but they can see that they don't need to enforce that part of their job. Like, it's a tricky slope, right? Because we can't let the person be the judge. But like, those are the best. They're, they're, they're discreet. They're like, yeah. yeah. It's wonderful when you meet somebody like that and you go, yep, it's a human being. And I'll never forget was that one officer, and I'll never forget his name, Officer Goglio. He said, look, a great name. I've been dealing with you now. And I'm going to tell you for the final time, you're not to ever street perform in front of this museum ever again. And I said, but it's how I live. It's how I survive. You're never to do it ever again. I said, well, I've only been doing it for what, nine years now? And was there a law that was recently created that you need to enforce and keep me from doing this? There's no new law. And so, of course, the following week, I went to street perform. I looked around. He wasn't around. He was hiding. I worked up a good crowd, and then he came in and cuffed me. Took me to Central Park Precinct. Cuffed me to a pipe. I had to take a leak. I sat there for two hours. I said, hey, can I hit the bathroom? And he was like, you can wait. And while I was waiting, all these other police officers were coming off their shift. You know what they did? They're the good cops I was talking to you about. They walked in and went, Oh, come on, Goglio. You got him in here? You got him handcuffed to a pipe. What the hell are you doing? Hey, hey, don't give me a hard time. I'm trying to do my job. Oh, man. And, you know, he did my criminal mug shots in my white face. He would, <laughs> That's I said, funny. That's a joke. That's a That's joke. That's exactly a joke. Long story short, when I went to court, the city provided me with a, a public defender. 
And he said, you know, the bottom line is you were doing this without a permit. I said, I've done my homework. The city does not issue a permit for street performing. Now, I don't know if it's changed, but at the time, they yeah. did not. And he said, you know what? Hold on. Came back 20 minutes later. You did your homework. There is no permit for street performers. When we go and you face the judge, do me a favor. Don't mouth off. Don't say anything. I'll take care of it. So I face the judge and he speaks to the judge. He says, Your Honor, he is arrested for performing without a permit. The city does not issue a permit for street performers. And the DA or what, whatever attorney is standing by the judge's side says, Your Honor, that can't be true. There has to be. There must be. And I wanted to say, well, you either know or you don't. Anyway, the judge said, oh, well, okay. Well, we'll have to look into this. Come back a month from now. You know how they do it. It's delay, delay, delay. And sure enough, when I went back, I didn't think about it the first time. I went back. I've been given awards from the city of New York for beautification, gentrification. Thank you for your contribution to the cultural aspect of New York City from the New York City Planning Commission, from, you know, d different things. I had these plaques on my wall that I got to come in, and this time the public defender allowed me to present those to the judge. And I had a different judge, and the judge just looked and laughed. I said, see how silly this is? We're wasting our time basically busting the balls of a street performer. Come on. Dismissed. But still couldn't go back to the Met because Goglio was on duty. Huh. You know? Huh. Well, wow. and the judge couldn't stop him from arresting oh, you. Oh, and I have a beautiful capper because you're here in L.A. to be an actor. Do you audition for commercials? All the time. Okay. During this whole court stuff, I auditioned for this Nabisco Wheat Thins commercial as a mime. And I go to the callback and I book the job, and I wait for two days to find out where we're shooting. I said, where's the location? <laughs> uh, we're shooting at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. <laughs> I'm like, oh, hot. And sure enough, Goglio's there. And he sees me before I can do anything. He didn't even pay attention to the production trucks. He said, now I got your fucking ass. And I had a first AD standing right next to me. I said, Officer Goglu, you'll have to speak with this gentleman here. And this guy said, do you have a problem? He's our talent for the day. We're shooting a commercial here. Here's our permits. And all Goglio could do is walk away. Uh, oh, that must have That been was the moment. last time that I performed there, and it was in a commercial. Wow. I'm happy and sorry to hear that. Yeah. I want to try to end on a better story than something that's frustrating. <laughs> I mean, that's a lovely, actually. That is a lovely story, but it's wrapped in this... This turd sandwich of Goglio, Goglio turd Goglio. sandwich. Officer, yeah. You know, one time after doing a very successful, wonderful show uh, back in Corfu, I went for a beer after and I walked by one of those stands that sells postcards. I bought a postcard, stamped it, and I sent it to Officer Goglio, <laughs> Central Park Precinct. I sent him a like a, a summer's greeting. Yeah. Oh, my heavens. But it's really nice when you find that dream spot and uh, there's no obstacles. Oh my goodness, there's nothing better yeah. to those of us that enjoy it. You have your highs and lows, your ups and downs, 
But uh, I think if he asks people, uh, can you remember like one of the best shows you ever gave or, and, and, and how do you define the best? It was like, it was the show that I pleased the audience the most or the show that I made the most money or the show that I simply walked away being the happiest with. It comes in all different levels. But I remember one night I had been performing in that square in Florence, Signorelli. Signoria? Uh, Piazza della Signoria? Yeah, Signoria. It's where, yeah, the... the, the, Outside Michelangelo, yeah, or the David. The the make-believe David is out there. Yeah, massive um, square. Beautiful. Yeah. And cobblestone. And leaving there to go back to my pension, I'm walking through the area where El Duomo, the Duomo is. Yeah, yeah. And there are like five, six hundred... Uh, university students and I go let me just squeeze in one more show and I start and I do this show it's probably again a 10 11 12 minute show and then I go and I pass my hat and it's like my god the money didn't stop and the people want to like hug you and thank you and touch you and grab you and I'll never forget walking away from the square, the Duomo, the baptistry is there, the Duomo's there, and I'm still getting somebody pulling on my shirt, tapping, oh, by the way, hey, people are still handing me paper, paper money as I'm trying to go back to my, it did, it was like the paper trail, didn't end. It was like, wow. Yeah, it's oh, funny. it's beautiful. Yeah. Also, that big square. I got a tap on my shoulder after a show once. I was there in June, and this guy said to me, very well-dressed, a German. After my show, he goes, excuse me, I, I watched your show. Uh, it's um, June uh, 23 now. What are you doing August the 2nd? You know that German, that Swiss, that Austrian, like very... Very specific. Very specific. You know... Trains run on time. Yep. I said, August the 2nd? Well, I'll be doing what I'm doing now. Very good. Are you interested in doing some good work? And I pay good money. And I said, what the hell? Why not? And August the 2nd, I showed up at his address. I went into this production office. I met some other performers at a table. I met a conductor and a director, a choreographer. Next thing you know it, we were rehearsing this Commedia dell'arte, a pantomime piece, wow. to a piece of Mozart music. And we had like two and a half week rehearsal and a two and a half week run in a German theater there. Wow. All from street performance. <laughs> and you know what I used to do? It used to drive the conductor crazy because we were making good money. They were paying us like, you know, it was like thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars $1,400 a week in Deutschmarks. But on the way to the theater, he would see me in the Marienplatz street performing. He'd go, you don't make enough money with us? You need to make more money on the street? And I said, hey, it's in my blood. <laughs> what can I tell you? <laughs> oh, sad good. This is good. I like this. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> anyway, that was one of the highlight jobs that came from street performing. Yeah, we touched on the bad things, but really... The good things so far outweigh that. The numbers of times touring around the planet, the numbers of amazingly beautiful people that you get to meet and know, and 
and we're such a supportive community. <coughs> like, and always have each other's backs. There's very little competition. Once you get to the festival level, especially, you know, we're we're friends. It's uh, and then all the beautiful things that come of it. The beautiful people you meet. The beautiful women you probably got laid by. The beautiful <laughs> performers that you got to do. <laughs> Some of those stories are off the charts, crazy. And how? Wait a minute. What? What just happened? <laughs> but you know, to, to finish on a high note too, and I don't want to like try to sugarcoat this or, or, or you know sprinkle it with sugar. But this is the truth. There were countless times that I would go back to my hotel room or pension after performing in a foreign city, where I had a pain or an ache in my face, and it's because of. That's how much smiling I did in the course of the day. Yeah. That much smiling. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pain of, of muscles from smiling. Yep. And that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, looking at you, you have the crow's feet of a man that smiled throughout his life versus the, the crinkle uh, in between the brow of a person that frowned all his life. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, as hard as I said, it, uh, it, as hard as it can be to make money in Paris, I did one show and I got big crowds at the Pompidou in different times. I did one show in front of the Pompidou once and this old woman and a little boy came up to me after the show and in very broken English she said uh, Monsieur this is my grandson this is his birthday and uh, his mother and father, they have given me these francs. Sebastian can use his money for whatever he chooses, and he wants to give his birthday money to you. And she gave me five hundred franc note, which at the time translation was a hundred dollars. Uh, yeah. And you made my grandson very happy. He's a very happy boy today on his birthday. Wow. Merci. And how sweet is that? Wow. I mean, heart open, tear face. Oh, the joy, yeah. the beauty. Well done. Yeah. Oh. So, you know, God bless those beautiful people out there. Yeah. And God bless street performing. Yeah. Yeah, where would we be without it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Monsieur Hal Dion. <laughs> thank you for your time. Thank you for coming over here. And let's keep the... Uh, the wave going nice. for current street performers and all the street performers to, to come. come. Yeah. Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these interviews. This episode was proudly sponsored by Dolphin Creative, a company dedicated to supporting street theater and all of the incredible characters who make up this world. Wherever you perform, Dolphin Creative salutes you. For more information, please visit dolphincreative.org. And huge thanks to Stuart and his team for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. Or become a sustaining supporter of this project at patreon.com slash buskerstories. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us grow this resource and generate more content. So thanks in advance for supporting this project and helping us keep busking history alive. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. 
You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Simply go to your favorite app, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. If you're accessing this content via iTunes, we'd love it if you could take a moment to leave us a review and give us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell? Something you think we can improve? A performer you'd like us to interview? Or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop Magic Brian a line at magic at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Busker Hop content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash buskerhalloffame. Follow us on Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. And just to revisit one of the themes that came up a few times during the interview, Hal has some last words about how to best deal with authority. In the early 70s, I met a guy who was just selling art. He said, I like to think of myself in terms of authority and people saying, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that, here or there. He goes, I'm like a jack-in-the-box. When it's safe, I pop up. I have a little moment here, I'm a little moment there. Jack in the box. And uh, that's kind of how I have treated street performing in places around the world. I always try to look to see if I see a cop going in the opposite direction. The face, the image of authority going the other way. And when I think the coast is clear, it's like get in and get out type of thing, you know? On behalf of myself, story editor Magic Brian, Lee Ross, who suggested that we interview Hal, Derek McAllister, who actually captured the interview, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame, we hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. God did not make me to be a juggler.